0: If you've ever had the opportunity to talk to someone who is not a Christian believer, or even some who think they are, you'll discover a common thread which runs through the thinking of most people. If there is a God, because today that is the position of many people, if there is a God, and if there is a heaven, then there is nothing so bad about me that God would reject me or turn me away. And there is nothing so bad about me that God would not accept me into his heaven, if heaven exists. There is a recognition with people that there must be some kind of dividing line between those who are good enough and those who are not. But of course, we're not surprised to discover that the default position for most people is... I was born on the good side of the line. And as long as I don't do anything really bad, but don't ask me to define what I mean by that, but as long as I don't do anything really bad, then I can keep myself on the good enough side of the line. And the reason why the Gospel is for... The majority of people such a hard pill to swallow is that it demands that i reject all of my much loved notions about myself and for as long as i remain in my sin my proud self-righteous heart will not allow me to do that i rather like the opinion that i have about myself Or, actually, what you may sometimes find is that such has been a person's life that they think so badly about themselves, they are convinced that they are beyond any redemption. Less common, but sometimes you'll find people like that. The Bible presents us with the truth that there is a God who may be known... And there is a heaven which may be entered. But in our sin, all of us are outside. There is a way in for all. But there is only one way in. And that, in a nutshell, is the truth that's presented to us in this account when Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, which means that he was a very devout religious man, a man who would have considered himself to be on the correct side of that dividing line, he came to Jesus by night to speak with him. And in what Jesus said to him, had all of his religion turned on its head. What Jesus teaches here, is three things that all of us need to know. But not just to know it, to understand it and to accept it to be true. He teaches where you are, where you need to be and how you get there. So we're in John chapter 3 from verse 1 to 21. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to have it open in front of you. We're going to see, first of all, that Jesus shows us in this passage where you are, where all of us are in our sin. We see that primarily towards the end of the passage, actually, in verses 18 to 20. Before we get there, Jesus' note says in verse 3, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's as emphatic a statement as you could hope to find. There are no loopholes loop, loop there, there are no escape clauses. And What does that, fr- that short phrase tell you? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's telling a truth which actually is found from cover to cover in the Bible that all of us are born separated from God and dwelling outside of his kingdom and therefore not heading for heaven. And the only way that anyone may gain entrance into God's kingdom and be assured of an entrance into heaven is by means of a severely radical change that has to take place in all of us. At the end of his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus makes it clear that being separated from God and dwelling outside of his kingdom is only part of the situation. In verses 15 and 16, which we'll get to later, Jesus twice talks about us not perishing Now why does he say that? Why does he mention us not perishing? It's because in your sin that is where you are as you stand before the living God. Right now you are perishing in your sin. And if nothing changes you will perish in your sin forever. He who does not believe is condemned already, Jesus said, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practising evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The light that has come into the world is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. But men and women and boys and girls, in their sin, reject his claims and his teaching. They are perhaps ready to accept him as a man who went about doing good and who from time to time said some very noble things, but to have him reign over us as Lord? No thank you. Sinful people love their sin, protect their sin, promote their sin, and hate the light because they don't want to have to give up their sin. And they don't want their sin to be exposed for what it really is. And so they hate God. And they hate Christ. And they have no intention of believing in him. And so they remain condemned. And this message of the gospel, this truth of the gospel, is most unpalatable to the sensibilities of lost men and women. Maybe you're one of them, and you are simply enraged even that the Bible should suggest that such things are true of you. Perhaps you read what Jesus said there and you You find yourself saying, How dare you suggest that I am evil? But you see, being evil isn't only about the kind of crimes that will get you a life sentence if you were taken to court. All sinfulness of every shade is evil in the eyes of a God who is perfect. And holy, run your finger down the list of the Ten Commandments. For example, do you have you ever loved God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, which is how the Bible summarizes the first four commandments? Has He ever been your chief love? And what about the other six? Have you never lied, never stolen, never coveted? How many have committed adultery or had sexual relationships outside of marriage? All of these things are evil in the eyes of God. They deny him. They transgress his law. Now occasionally you'll find Christians who when they talk about the gospel they choose not to mention these things or try to hide it away in the small print at the bottom of the page because they think it will put people off and make them not listen. But the passage that we're looking at has that famous 16th verse. How can you talk about John 3.16? John 3.16 And not mention the not perish part of the verse. How can you talk about John 3.16. And not explain what the word perish actually refers to. And why it's there. How can you talk about them being saved in verse 17. And not make it clear to them what it is they're being saved from and why it's such a big issue. What kind of gospel is it that you're presenting to people if being saved from perishing isn't explained to them or worse, isn't even mentioned? And what would they therefore need to repent of? What are they supposed to be repenting from? if you've not said a word about the issue of their sin. I can't help thinking that when Jesus said those words might not perish. That perhaps was the truth that meant the most to him. Those three words were the ones most heavily laden with deep meaning. This Jesus is the God-man who has been appointed by the Father to return one day as the judge of all the world. This Jesus is the God-man who will be sending men and women into eternal torment. And he knows precisely what that means. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus describes hell as a place of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, and from which there is no return, not even to warn your loved ones. Jesus talks far more about hell than he ever does about heaven. And he provides a more, de- a more detailed description of hell than he does about heaven. Have you ever paused to consider what it must have meant to him to utter those words that you might not perish? Jesus wants you to know that the reason for him coming into this world is by a country mile the best news that you are ever going to hear. Let's face it, we all need to hear some good news right now. You stand separated from God, outside of his kingdom, perishing and condemned in your sin. And in your own belief, that is where you are. But praise God, the message of the Bible doesn't end there. And you don't have to remain there. Because in this passage, Jesus also goes on to explain where you need to be. This, this second point is a, a short, concise point sandwiched between the other two. Where you need to be is to be part of God's kingdom, which is what seeing it means in verse 3. Where you need to be is not perishing, but having everlasting life. Where you need to be is saved not condemned over the last few weeks I've tried to show you that the Bible presents us with priorities which in our sinful state we don't have and that we don't seek after it could be easily demonstrated if you or I were to walk into the Royal Liverpool Hospital this afternoon and if we were permitted to walk around the wards and get alongside all of the patients as they're lying on their beds And if we said to each of them, I can offer you one of two things, either immediate physical health and healing or the forgiveness of your sins, entrance into God's kingdom and the guarantee of heaven. Which of those two options do you think they'd go for? If you went into all of the COVID-19 wards, where people in some cases are staring death in the face, which of those two options do you think they'd go for? You know what they'd choose. They would choose the physical, the here and now, that which can be seen with the eyes and touched with the hands. The priority that the Bible presents is not what sinful men and women will make as their priority. They would rather forget that even if they were healed of that particular ailment it is still appointed for all of us once to die and after that the judgment. As you sit this morning with this text open in front of you and with the words, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to you, because I'm not making any of this up. This is what Jesus said. Where are you right now? Are you where you should be? Are you satisfied with where you are as you stand before God? Are you satisfied with where and how you will spend eternity? Eternity is a long time. Actually, eternity is such a long time, it's a realm where there is no time. Where you are and where you should be, and I'm not talking about locked down or back at work. Where are you in relation to God and His kingdom? And his coming judgment. That's the issue that Jesus Christ would press upon you this morning. From this portion of his word. And if you're someone who is starting to realise that things for you are not as they should be. How do you get from where you are to where you should be? Where you need to be? Well, let's think about that as our third and final point this morning. How do you get to there? Well, it's a two-pronged answer. First of all, we see in verse 3 and verse 6, you must be born again, and that that's a work of the Spirit of God. And you must believe in Christ, three times belief in Christ is mentioned. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 18. Jesus is God come from heaven who has become a man in order that he might be lifted up, says verses 13 and 14. It's referring back to a time in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Numbers chapter 21. When God... Sent poisonous snakes into the camp of Israel. It was a punishment for their sin. Many of them were dying from the snake bites. But God is gracious and He's merciful and He's ready to forgive. And He instructed Moses to craft the figure of a snake in bronze and to hang it on a wooden pole. And everyone who got bitten by the snakes but looked upon the bronze snake on the pole would be saved and not die, but live. Jesus came to save you and me from the poison of our sin. And in order to do it, he was hung on a Roman cross. And it's by looking to him in his sacrificial death as your substitute, as he took upon himself your condemnation, and as he perished so that you don't have to. And it's by believing in him, trusting in him, and in his atoning death for your sins, for your salvation, that if you do that, you will be saved. It's because... God so loved the world that God sent him, and into the world he came. But if verses 19 and 20 are true, and I've already said that they are, how will anyone who loves darkness rather than light ever believe in Christ? How will anyone who hates the light and won't come to the light, how will they come to the light and believe in the light? Well, these are good questions. I'm glad you asked. Is God playing perverse tricks with us? No. The answer is, you must be born again. And as Jesus makes clear in verse 6, this is the whole and unique work of the Spirit of God. Back in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, a very well-known psalm, David describes God creating a clean heart in him, renewing a steadfast spirit within him. He actually talks about himself as a sinner being converted to God. The same word chosen by the Apostle Peter when he was preaching the Gospel in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Ezekiel in the Old Testament speaks of the renewing of a steadfast spirit as well and goes on to liken it to God taking away our cold, stony hearts and replacing them with hearts of flesh. Jesus calls it being born again. Paul calls it being made a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6. And he calls it being made alive in Ephesians chapter 2. To the Romans, Paul describes it as newness of life and the newness of the Spirit. And writing to Titus, he puts it as the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Creating, renewing, converting, replacing, making alive, regenerating. They're all different ways of describing this miracle of saving grace performed by God In the life of one born dead in trespasses and sins, who is born again, receiving a brand new nature. So, for example, here is Zacchaeus, the tax collector, with a sudden urge to see this Jesus. Where did that sudden urge come from? He takes himself off into town and climbs up a tree to get a better view because he must see Jesus. Where's all this coming from in Zacchaeus? Jesus walks past but stops and looks up and sees him and calls him by name and says he must come to meet with him in his home. Where did that come from? Off they go into the home of Zacchaeus and sometime later Zacchaeus emerges from his house and the Zacchaeus who comes out of that house is not the same man who went in as he calls Jesus Lord and determines right there and then to put right the many wrong things that he has done. What's been going on? Has Jesus just given him a crash course in self-improvement and how to make friends and influence people? Has Jesus told him to look inside himself, to find the real Zacchaeus who's just waiting to be discovered? No, if Zacchaeus had looked inside of himself, he'd have only found the same old nasty, proud, selfish, cheating, thieving Zacchaeus that he'd always been. What was going on that day? In all of those things that took place, simply this, God was at work and made him new. Salvation has come to this house today, said Jesus. Zacchaeus had been born again and came out of his house a changed man how has anyone ever come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ God works this miracle of renewing life-giving grace in the sinner just like he did in Zacchaeus and with that comes an an enlightening of the mind with that comes conviction of sin with that comes the gift of faith with that comes repentance and a believing in christ a trust in christ and when we see that happen all we can do is echo the words that we find in psalm 118 i will praise you for you have answered me And have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvellous
1: in our
0: eyes. So here is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. This earnest, devout and religious man. And Jesus pulls the rug right out from under his feet. Nicodemus, he says, for all your sincere observance of the law of God, there's something you need to know. Nicodemus, you are not where you think you are. You are not where you need to be. And the only way that you may get there is to be born again. And believe in me. That is the only way that you may gain entrance into the kingdom of God. There's only one way in. Jesus is the door. The way. The truth. The life. No one comes to God except by him. Christian friends, how could you ever find yourself in the position where you feel as though you have nothing over which you may rejoice and nothing over which you may give thanks to the Lord? What manner of love the Father has shown to you that you should be called a child of God and granted an entrance into his kingdom, into his presence, into his heaven forever. To those of you who as yet are not saved, some of you may be wondering, but how can I know if I've been born again in order that I may believe? The Bible says not to worry about that question. Do you believe? Will you believe? Will you turn from your sin and trust in Christ? Then believe and turn and repent and trust and be saved. And in believing you'll find assurance that you have indeed been born again.